Hey friends, thank you so much for joining us on the Abbey Podcast. We're working to help you notice and nurture the work of God in your life, in the life of others, and in the world around you. One small thought we'd ask you to keep in mind is that our teachings, our conversations, our reading of the scriptures, and the stories that we tell are primarily meant for our local faith community in Columbus, Ohio. We're happy to share this with you as a gift, and we hope that it could serve you in some way. Our scripture reading comes from the first chapter of Genesis. That's what I mean when I say back to the beginning. Um, And also the Gospel of John this morning. So I'm going to do the scripture reading. Genesis 1.1. It might be familiar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And after God creates day and night and the heavens and the earth and all the plants and the terrestrial bodies and all the things that swim in the water and all the animals on the earth, he says this in verse 26, let us make the human in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. And so skipping ahead, John 1, 1 says in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And after John tells the story of the life of Jesus, and all the miracles of healing, and all the feasting and partying, he tells the story of Jesus' betrayal and trial as he heads to the crucifixion. And as Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, wearing a crown of thorns and clothed in purple, which is symbolic of royalty, Pilate presents Jesus before the crowd and says in John chapter 19, verse 5, Behold. Hey, friends, uh, it's good to be here. Can you hear me okay? Is this thing working? Awesome. It's great to be here on a Sunday morning together. Thank you so much. Um, I'm not going to say a lot pre preamble here. Um, it feels like I've been waiting to preach for like two years. Uh, so I'm kind of ready to get going on it. But I just want to remind you that once we hit January, who's excited for January? I'm super excited for January. Once we hit January, we're going to be in this room twice a month and we'll be in our community groups at Wild Goose Creative twice a month, which means that we will be gathering together every single week starting in January. So for those of you that have been hanging on and just waiting for us to like re- launch this church. I just want to say thank you so much for your patience. For those of you that are are new, we just welcome you. Thanks for being here. Um, I want to start by saying I love this church, and I am super excited about about the future. And we're a church that's really committed to spiritual formation and the presence of God and inviting people to follow Jesus with their entire life. And so that's where we're headed. We're we're headed uh, in formation and community and mission as we slowly work our way uh, into 2022. So I'm, I'm ready to lead us into being a prophetic church in this city, to be a, a contemplative church. I don't know about you, but I think that people uh, need something in their life to help them slow down and experience the presence of God. And that's what we're trying to do together. Amen. amen. Thanks, Jen. Um, it's been a long time since I got an amen. That's amazing. <laughs> 
So it's the first Sunday of Advent, and I do want to talk with you about hope, but we do have a little bit of uh, things to cover before we get there, a little ground to cover. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, um, there was no short supply of, of science fiction films. How many of you are, are science fiction fans? Anybody science fiction reading or watching? So there's one particular film that I came across. I read about it. I haven't seen it. And it describes uh, the film as being set in the not-too-distant future when the Earth is overpopulated and it lacks resources to support everybody. So sounds very science fiction-y, right? And so they put into place an, uh, an ethical suicide program to try to deal with this problem of overpopulation. So if I'm just getting your attention, I'm talking about a film set in the 1970s. This isn't real life. Uh, this is a story. Uh, this is how science fiction works. Um, and in this science fiction film world, volunteers who want to help reduce the population are invited to come into a quiet and spacious and comfortably furnished room and talk with friendly staff while they are served their favorite meal. And after this, they're given a lethal injection where they will fall asleep forever. This is the plot of the movie. And the film shows a man who was chosen to go through this process and at the end of, of this process, as he and the friendly staff woman with the soothing voice are, are conversing a little bit, a doctor walks in with a white lab coat, gives the guy a jab, and then the man turns to the nurse and says, hey, could I ask you one more question? And, and the doctor whispers into the ear of, of the woman, you're not going to have time to answer it. This stuff works really quickly. He's going to be asleep in the next 60 seconds. And just as he is about to take his final breath, he looks up at the woman and he asks her this question, what are people for? What are people for? So science fiction has a tendency to deep to, to have this sort of deep philosophical layer beneath the plot. And if you're looking for like a more present day movie that might be in the news, if you, how many of you have seen The Matrix? Okay, so uh, science fiction, deeply philosophical, asking questions beneath the surface of the story. Here we are 20 years later, about to do a redo of The Matrix, I hear. Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves is actually still an actor. And... Uh, <laughs> He is making a comeback. So I actually like him, by the way, as an actor. Most people don't, but um, I actually really do. So this is the beauty of science fiction. Is science fiction helps us get at a deeper questions that we're asking through this kind of genre. Deep philosophical questions. Um, how many of you ever seen the um, sort of advertisement for, for like the master class program stuff? So philosophy professor Cornell West, uh, who's a wonderful, wonderful human being, uh, he's taught at Harvard and Princeton and all the other fancy places. He just released his master class in philosophy, and he puts the main question of philosophy like this. He says, what does it mean to be a featherless, two-legged, linguistically conscious creature whose body will soon be the culinary delight of terrestrial worms? <laughs> He goes on to say that every generation of the human species has to come to terms with learning how to love and how to live and what do we do when we're faced with catastrophe. This is the task of being a human being. And I don't know about you, but the more I talk to people, the more that people have been asking some of these deep philosophical questions over the past couple of years. Do you guys get a sense that people are asking some deeper questions? 
And as I listen to people, the sense that I get from people is um, that the answers to those questions over the past couple of years have, have actually been really hard to come by. They've been sitting and thinking and watching sort of the world fall apart and explode and implode. And if they're coming to some sort of conclusion, some of the conclusions that they're coming to are deeply unsatisfactory. I don't know if you guys know this, but in addition to a global pandemic, there's a, there's a pandemic of mental health that's happening right now. People are really struggling because some of the bottom of the story is beginning to drop out. And so over the next seven or so months, as we gather together to worship and pray and welcome the presence of God together and read the scriptures together, the primary question that I want us to sit with and ask is the question of what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a human being? And because the scriptures answer this question uh, a little differently, I want to change it slightly in a way that I'll explain in just a moment. But I want to change it to say, what does it mean to become a human being? What does it mean to become a human being? And so our series for the next seven or so months is entitled Becoming Human. And if you've forgotten how this works or you're new with us, uh, one of the things is I, I like to do a deep dive into one topic over the course of like eight or so months together because I believe that the way that people change, the way that people get formed, is to engage in the scriptures deeply, in conversation, in prayer, in community. And that's what I want to have us do together over the next seven or eight months. What does it mean to be a human being? And this is a question of what's called theological anthropology. For those of you that are interested in such things, how do we think about what it means to be a human being in light of what God has revealed in the scriptures? And this morning, I just want to take a few minutes and I want to begin to think about this question together by taking a look at the way that this question gets currently answered in three primary places. In the, prevail in the prevailing cultural narrative around us, in the story and the tradition of the scriptures, and in our own hearts. How does the question of what does it mean to be a human being begin to get answered from those three spots? And on that last one, on how do we, how do we answer that from our own hearts, I want to end by inviting you to sit with a question and to hold some tension for like seven or eight months until we get to Easter, okay? So that's sort of where we're headed. And I hope you'll be back week after week as we unfold this topic. So first, let me begin with one of the ways that this question gets answered in the cultural narrative that we hear like 24-7. So, uh, you guys with me? It's been a long time since you've probably sat in front of <laughs> Okay, good. No, no, I wasn't. I just, no. No, I just, you know, it's just a funny moment to preach in front of people with masks on. And so, uh, I, I'm so glad you're here. I'm, I'm fighting back tears being in a room with you, so... So friends, we live in a time when one of the primary cultural narratives around this question is a narrative that states that however you want to answer that question is completely up to you. That's the main cultural narrative, one of the main cultural narratives that I think that we live with. What does it mean to be a human being is completely up to you. And however you want to end up answering that question, one of the other things that's happening is that everybody else needs to just accept how you want to answer that question. 
So what's begun to happen culturally is there's no guiding framework for humanity answering this question collectively anymore. There used to be, by the way. There used to be answers to these bigger questions where we, we would ask the question, what do we think it means to be a human being? And now we live in a culture that says, what do you think it means to be a human? You as an individual, what do I think? And whatever I think it means to be a human being, I get to live out of that particular narrative. And whatever you think it means to be a human being, you need to live out of that particular narrative. And we can never challenge one another. That's sort of an individualized framework for answering this deep philosophical question. The task of answering this question has moved from what do we think about what it means to be a human being to what do I think about what it means to be a human being. We've, we've become hyper-individualized in how we think about some of these deeper questions. And listen, guys, I get it. There's a huge temptation in the 21st, 21st century to cultivate one's humanity for the world. Um, we have more or less become a society of the cultivation of the self. Anybody heard that word? Like, we've, we've cultivated a space for you. <laughs> like the word cultivate, uh, by the way, is a beautiful word that goes back to our connection with the land, but we've applied it to our own selves. And we have these platforms of expression of individuality. So we have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, and I'm sure a dozen more that I'm too old to even recognize actually exist in the world. Um, and these places, these like social media places, these outlets for many people have become the primary place of recreation where we dance in front of cameras and we filter our face and we share with the world a highly cultivated version of who we want to present to the world as ourselves. The answer to the question, what does it mean to be human, is actually shifting in the larger cultural framework away from a shared narrative and towards a narrative that leads us to believe that every person is meant to answer that question for themselves. What does it mean for you to be a human being? You get to decide. That's the cultural narrative. Your life is more or less a blank slate, and you get to create your own meaning for your life. And then these big tech companies are creating a world in such a way as to give us an ever-increasing palette and all of the paintbrushes that we could possibly imagine in order to create a self that we present to the world. Um, and, and for whatever purpose that we think might be worthy. You guys see this happening a little bit in the world around you? So this is why Facebook is becoming the metaverse. This is why TikTok is a $34 billion a year revenue business. And it's why Instagram has become the primary place where teens and young adults find, and ex and find community and expression of themselves into the world. All of these platforms are becoming just a palette with paintbrushes for us to create our own selves. And listen, guys, um, social media gets like a bad rap a lot. Um, I'm not trying to necessarily poo-poo uh, social media. I'm not trying to throw social media under the bus. Um, I, I do think social media is doing a fair share of shaping us and telling us what we should desire. But I also think what's happening is that these social media platforms are actually a mirror mirroring back to us what we already desire. 
And what we desire is we desire a place to cultivate a self for the world. So what gets highlighted as the pinnacle of human existence in the world in which we live in today is the ability to stand out above the crowd, to be unique, and to have a unique possibility of answering the question of what defines one's life. We want to be able to stand up and be an influencer and say, this is the way to go forward in terms of what it means to be a human being. And so the primary way that our culture is answering the question around what does it mean to be a human being centers around self-expression, around self-expression. Now, listen, let me just be really clear. Um, I love self-expression. I love art. I love poetry. I love fashion. Believe it or not, you would not know that I actually... I like fashion. I like clothing. I like it when people get to express themselves. I like when other people wear colors. I'm more of a muted gray kind of guy. Um, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 4. I'm an artist. I love self-expression. I don't think that we need to mute our lives. But what I'm interested in is I'm interested in how do we become individual expressions of the thing that God has intended for us to be. Does that make sense? It's a subtle difference that I think we need to really regain and recapture. And so you would not be surprised to know or to learn that scripture tells a radically different story about what it means to be a human being. And my hope is to try to help you see that there's an alternate narrative in the scriptures that helps us get at the, the clarity around this question of what does it mean to be a human being? And it, can instruct us and it can guide us so that we don't have to keep trying to answer that question because I don't know about you, but it feels exhausting. The way I watch people try to answer this question in these constantly individualized ways. And what, I, what my experience is as I talk with people is that um, even when people get to the, the height of that sort of self-expression, if you've been following uh, artists in the world, if you follow musicians, most of them will, will end up telling you at the end of their careers that they were just constantly searching in this unsatiable way for that sense of self-expression, and they ended up feeling just as empty as when they began. They just were a lot wealthier. <laughs> And so let's look at the scriptures together. There's something deep in the story of the scriptures that God reveals as the answer to some of this question. That there are some foundational truths in the scriptures that help us answer these bigger questions. And one of the ways that the scriptures do this, one of the ways they point us back to the foundational realities of what God is, is doing underneath the, 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 the framework is the phrase, in the beginning. The phrase in the beginning is like a megaphone that says, I'm about to tell you something foundational. Does that make sense? And it shows up in two places. And in both places, the writer of those words is trying to lay in front of us a foundational reality. And this is where I'd like to begin our journey in the question of what does it mean to be a human being? So in Genesis chapter 1, the writer is writing in the beginning there was formlessness and a giant void of existence, and the entire world was filled with chaos. And the writer is describing the world like this 
in an effort to get across this foundational principle, which is that God, the creator, hovered over that chaos like a dove and wooed that chaos into creation by speaking to it. By speaking to it. Speaking creation into existence. And in the opening lines of John's gospel, John picks up these words and he says, in the beginning, in order to tell a new creation story. So guys, I'm I'm trying to draw your attention to some of the ways that scripture works is that the apostle John is basically trying to be smooth and secretive and all throughout his gospel, he's pointing back to Genesis. He's trying to get the reader of his gospel to recognize that he wants us to go back to the beginning and to let the reader begin to try to understand that the story that you are about to read, the gospel that you're about to read, is a story of new creation. It's a new creation story. John is more or less saying, listen, I'm about to tell you the story of the Messiah Jesus, and I'm going to tell it from the very beginning of time and to catch you up to what's happening as we look at Jesus' life unfolding. And so John opens up with the same words. He says, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. That's John 1, 1 and 2. And John continues to pick up themes from from Genesis. Uh, Let me just give you an example. You guys have probably heard that in Genesis, the creation narrative unfolds around seven days of creation, right? So if you look at the Gospel of John, this is the beauty. These guys and gals who uh, wrote the scriptures and input it into the scriptures were geniuses. John forms his entire story of the Gospel around seven signs, The eighth sign being the resurrection, which we'll get to in Easter. But he's basically saying, I'm telling a new creation story. I'm riffing off what happened in Genesis. And we're going to get the job done by going back to the beginning and retelling the story around the person of Jesus. So John is trying to make sense of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And he's trying to connect it to this first book of the scriptures, which is John's way of saying, again... I'm doing some foundational work here. I'm doing some foundational work here. John regularly, by the way, plants these little breadcrumbs in his story that lead us back to Genesis. Little little breadcrumbs that you discover along the way. And I just want to pull out one of those breadcrumbs, struggling with that, um, uh, for for us in our time together. So the Genesis story says that after God creates day and night and the heavens and the earth and all of the plants and all of the terrestrial bodies and all of the things that swim in the water and all of the animals on the earth, this is what he says in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Let us make the human in our image and in our likeness and let them rule. Let them be rulers. Let us make a human being, is what God says. Let us make a human being. This is the project of God. 
the making of a human being is the project of God. And one interesting note to point out, and it's one that scholars point out about the text in Genesis, is that in every instance of creation, of everything other than the human being, the text says that God spoke those things into existence. It's called the divine fiat. It's like, let there be this, and there was that. Uh, and if you know your grammar or you're a grammar nerd, uh, this is in the command tense. It's the imperative. God says, let there be light and there is light. Let the waters divide and the waters divide. Let there be this great giant ball of fire in the sky and we'll call it the sun. And let there be a lesser light and we'll call it something else. Let there be, let there be, let there be. And it was. But when it comes time to make a human being, the language shifts and God does not speak human beings into existence. The language shifts to a deliberative process and he says, let us make, let us make. And he, the, the, the story in Genesis goes on. Uh, in this very poetic way, and it has God picking up a bit of clay and forming the clay into a body. There's this deliberative process. And again, for you grammar junkie, junkies, this is in the subjective sense, which means it's going on and on and on. It doesn't happen all at once. The project of creating a, a human being is an unfolding project, not one that happens momentarily. You follow me? Okay. Okay. Let us make the human in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. And as John's gospel begins to reach its climax, when Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate for trial and ultimately led to his execution, so get that image in your mind, John puts one more layer on it. Another breadcrumb leading us back to the Genesis narrative let us make a human being, God says in Genesis 1. And may the human being be in our image and according to our likeness. And may the humans be rulers. And in John 19, Jesus is standing with a crown of thorns on his head, arrayed in a purple robe, indicating royalty and kingship as one who would rule. And he was proclaimed as the king of the Jews. And then in verse 5, it says that Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, behold the human. Behold the human. For, for John, and in his gospel story, the project of God making a human being in his image and likeness, who will rule with a crown and a glorious robe, is at this point in the story a man who loved so much that he gave his life for the sake of others. And this is what it means to be a human being. To give one's life in this kind of love. To be a human being, for the gospel writer John, is to love this much and to give up your life for the sake of love. The way of ruling as a human is through self-sacrificial love. Let me just pause for a second. Do you guys get the imagery here? Listen, I, I've spent like weeks with this text, so it's like in my mind, but 
I, I wish we were like a fancy church and had like a projector and I could show some images and that would be really nice. Maybe we'll get there. But get this image in your mind of Jesus wearing a crown and a royal robe as a ruler, fulfilling the job of what happened in Genesis. And Pilate stands up and says, behold the human. Behold the human being. This is the first human being. Because what it means to be a human being is to love in this way. This is one of the main things that John, as the writer, is trying to get across. And friends, God is in the process of making you and I into this kind of human being. This is what life is about. And I wonder if you would be willing to try on a little thought experiment with me over the next seven or eight months. This is the tension that I'm asking us to hold a little bit. I wonder if you'd be willing to use your imagination a little bit as we think about the question of what does it mean to be a human being, and could you possibly consider the possibility that you have yet to be made a human being? That you're still in the process of being formed into a human. Now, listen, if you really push me, I'm not trying to get you to believe that you're not a human being, okay? I'm trying, it's a thought experiment. Could you consider the possibility that you're still in the womb, so to speak, and that everything that is happening in your life right now, all of the joy and the sadness, all of the grief and the fullness, all of the hard decisions that you have before you, does anybody have a hard decision before them? Anybody at all? Okay. We live with hard decisions. All of that stuff is God picking up clay in your life and shaping and forming you to be the kind of person that becomes a human being through love and through learning how to love in the way in which God loves, which was demonstrated by Jesus wearing a crown of thorns, wearing a purple robe, giving up his life for the sake of all. Does this make sense? So the way that the scriptures answers the question about what it means to be a human being is different than the narrative that we live with in our culture. If the cultural narrative says that being a human being means primarily self-expression, the scripture narrative says that being a human being is primarily about self-giving love. Self-giving love. I want to close with a brief story. One of the most striking testimonies of this idea that we become a human through this kind of self-giving love is found in a letter written not too long after John wrote his gospel. So there was a man named Ignatius of Antioch in the early church, second century. Um, if you are around here long enough, you'll hear me say the words early church often because these are the people that I'm reading. I'm reading uh, the fathers, the early church fathers, the desert fathers, the folks that wrote our creeds. Um, those are the guys that I read. There was a man named Ignatius of Antioch in the second century. And as best as historians are able to tell, Ignatius was a pastor of a community in Antioch. And there's lots of conflict emerging in, in the church about what it meant to follow Jesus and, and to live in the way of Jesus. Um, Sounds 
I mean, sounds like it could be now, right? I mean, there's a lot of controversy in, in the world about what does it mean to follow Jesus and what does it mean to be a part of the church. But in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, when that began to happen, when the Christians began to behave badly, the emperor just started killing people. So if I can, like, get these people to be quiet, uh, the best way that I can do that is just to start killing people. And so Ignatius of Antioch was picked up by the Romans, and he began making his way to Rome, and he was scheduled to be eaten by the beasts at a circus. Like, that's just how they did it. That's how they dealt with conflict. Um, and honestly, we have, like, ways of doing that as well, but... Uh, but this is the life that Ignatius of Antioch was living. And on his way to Rome, he begins writing letters to different churches that he had visited. And one of the letters that he writes is to the Christians in Rome who had heard that he was going to be brought to be killed by the beast, probably lions and tigers and bears in a circus. And uh, this is what is happening. And so along his journey, he's writing these letters, and one of the letters he writes is, is to the people in Rome, and this is what he writes. He says this. He says, it is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be king over the ends of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose for us. And listen to this. Birth pains are upon me. He's ready to die. And he says, birth pains are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Remember, he's on his way to death. He says, hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. Suffer me to receive pure light. When I shall arrive there, I will be a human being. He's trying to prevent them from stopping his execution because he sees his death as his birth. Does that make sense? When I die, I will be a human being because I will see him face to face. And we see this in other spots is that those who are following the gospel of John took seriously the idea that if I give my life in love, I become a human. This is how they read the scriptures. And so let me close by orienting us towards Advent a bit and a very quick word about hope. This way we tell the story about what it means to be a human being in our hearts. So we've looked at one way that culture tells us about the story and the answer to this question. And I think we've looked at at least one way that the scriptures reveal to us how we answer this question. And I want to close with a brief reflection on how this question, this question of what does it mean to be a human being, gets answered in our own hearts. And then I want to give you just a few minutes to sit while we prepare for worship together with music. If we can live in a way that, that lives imaginatively into the possibility that we're in the womb right now, so to speak, being formed into what we're always meant to be, which is a human being, able to love as Christ loved us in the passion, in the death and the resurrection, and that we will not fully be a human being until we die. Then all of the struggles that we experience is formation that is restoring us as image bearers 
to be his likeness. It's just a way of contextualizing your life. How many of you have had like a hard bit of life in the past couple years? Anybody had hardship in their life? If, if you are not raising your hand, I don't know where you've been living, but I would love to go there. All of that is context of a womb that God is making you into a human being. To be made into his likeness, to be able to love as God loves, to rule over creation, not with triumphant glory, but with the kind of glory that wears a crown of thorns and a blood-stained purple robe as we lay down our life for one another. I don't know about you, but this framework for me, it feels hopeful. It feels like I can grasp a, a sense of hope that this is the work that God is doing in my life for that particular purpose. That God is teaching us how to be fully alive as we learn how to love self-sacrificially. So I just want to close this in prayer. Um, and I want to give you just a couple things to reflect on as we prepare to, to worship together. So would you, would you pray with me? So Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for your presence here with us. We ask God that you would be with us as we worship, as a response to the reading of your word. Just come Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in scripture, the writer of Isaiah gives us this image of our lives as clay and God as the potter, making us and forming us. And as we just spend a, a few minutes preparing our hearts for worship, I just want to invite you to think about the past season of your life and to begin to ask God, God, what have you been using in my life that is shaping me to become a human in your likeness? What have you been using in my life towards shaping me to become a human in your likeness. We'll just sit for a few moments with that question and Steve's gonna invite us into worship.